the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, nothing of importance happens today except this. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. And I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. Christopher, this time we have an interview with uh, Brendan Dubois on his new science fiction novel, Red Vengeance. Red Vengeance is the sequel to Dark Victory. It's about human resistance to alien invasion. The story takes place about 10 years into the war, with most of the armed forces manned by teenagers these days because, well, most of us oldies, even your age, Christopher, have been killed off. It's really a driving story with an amazing battle climax that takes place in upstate New York. Good stuff. And also want to mention that Brendan is an award-winning mystery writer and is now working on his second collaboration with James Patterson, which probably pays him a good deal more than us. But he loves science fiction, so he keeps writing for us. And, of course, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of the Leaden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now, here's the news. Hey, I want to make a special mention of a great new anthology now out at Booksellers, The Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction, Volume 3, edited by David F. Sherrad, who has hosted many of these podcasts, by the way, and you're familiar with his voice. David reads literally everything in science fiction these days, including obscure online stuff and such, to pick out the year's best stories and bring them to you, so you don't have to wade through the, uh, well, you know what I mean. This year's edition has some amazingly great uh, military SF, including maybe my favorite, which is David Drake's Cadet Cruise, which is about the young Daniel Leary when he was young. And there is a story written in the form of a Time Machine review on Amazon that is, I thought it was just utterly brilliant and funny. You owe it to yourself to check the anthology out. And of course, you can also go online at Bain.com and vote on the best story in the volume. We'll give the author a plaque and 500 bucks at DragonCon at the end of August. Instructions on how to do that are in the book. It's, it's really easy to do. Of course, if you want to reward the author with 50 saw books, you'll have to read the thing before mid-August unless we can figure out a way for votes to travel back into the past and count, which we are working on. So, Christopher, where can we find this wonderful collection? Well, the year's best military and adventure science fiction, Volume 3, uh, edited, of course, by our own David F. Sherrod, is available at booksellers everywhere and can be found online at BainEbooks.com. want to welcome Brendan Dubois to the podcast. Hey, Brendan. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me. Brendan Dubois is the award-winning author of more than two dozen novels. I said more than two dozen since I don't know how many, but <laughs> it's up there. Did I? <laughs> And over 150 short stories. His short stories have twice won him the Seamus Award from the Private Eye Writers of America and have also earned him three Edgar Award nominations. Brendan lives in New Hampshire. He's a former Jeopardy! champion. He's also won that game show called The Chase. 
Brendan has co-authored two novellas with James Patterson and is working on a full-fledged novel with him as well. Um, and uh, what was, you're up for a couple of more awards. Is it Mystery Field Awards? Yeah, they're both uh, mystery-related. One is uh, a short story that I'm up for an, another Seamus Award from the Private Eye Rise America. I'll learn about that this fall. And another, for the first time ever, one of my short stories was nominated for Best Short Story of the Year by an organization called International uh, Thriller Writers, which includes guys like uh, Lee Child and Michael Connolly and all those great guys. So, oh, that's cool. Well, I'll ask you about the Patterson things a little bit a little bit later. Um, but let us talk about um, Red Vengeance, because now at Booksellers Everywhere is Red Vengeance, the sequel to Brenda's very exciting uh, novel of Alien Invasion and Human Resistance, Dark Victory. And also available, in addition to Red Vengeance, also available on the Bain.com main page, I want to mention, and later in Free Short Stories 2017, the ebook anthology at BainEbooks.com, is a story that can give you a taste of Red Vengeance called A Fire on the Hill of that world. Um, so at the end of Dark Victory, I thought that Buddy Colson had gotten the aliens to surrender, and... Now we're in Red Vengeance and Randy is fighting creepers again. What gives? Can you uh, kind of set up where, just set up where sure. the world and where we are at the ending of Dark Victory and where we are at the start of uh, Red Vengeance? Certainly, uh, both novels, Dark Victory and Red Vengeance, take place on an Earth where 10 years earlier an alien race called the Creepers had invaded. They set off nuclear devices in the upper atmosphere, frying all electronics, sending us back into a 19th century world. They dropped asteroids uh, offshore coastal cities to set up tsunamis. And just to round things off, they set up a network of what's called killer stealth satellites, which will fire upon any high-level technology. And then the aliens landed on Earth and, and just started raising hell. So. Unlike some alien invasion books or series that take place, oh my gosh, here are the aliens. This one takes place 10 years later where the resistance is continuing. But since so many adults have been killed off, uh, most of the military are teenage boys and girls. In Dark Victory, it seemed that the aliens had finally surrendered, that we had managed a ways of communicating them and that they were giving up. In Red Vengeance, we find out that maybe we were just a little too off the mark in that. And the fighting is continuing. And what was fun in Red Vengeance is that I decided to write a whole chunk of the book where Randy, in the first book, was sort of by himself. In the second book, Red Vengeance, he's assigned to an infantry company, and there's a lot of action, a lot of action, and I had a lot of fun writing it. Yeah, there's a lot of, of, of cool uh, uh, cool small unit action and stuff that um, that goes on. So, well, tell us about Sergeant Randy Knox to begin with. He's he's um, this cool combination of sort of implacable warrior and awkward teenager, like you mentioned. And he really he's a winning character. What's what's Randy like? Where's he from? He's from New Hampshire. Randy's from New Hampshire. When the war began, he was six years old. He still has distant memories of electricity, uh, computer games, iPads, you know, refrigerators. And when the war began, his mom and older sister were killed, and it's just he and his dad. Uh, since he's been 12 years old, he's been assigned to the New Hampshire National Guard, attached to the uh, U.S. Army. And in both Dark Victory and Red Vengeance, he's 16 years old, 
and he's a sergeant in a unit that's called Recon Rangers, where he's paired with a canine dog that is taught to sniff out the creepers, the aliens. And they basically go out seeking uh, the aliens and calling in for reinforcements to kill them. And as you said, yes, he is a stone-cold killer of the creepers, or the bugs, as he calls them. But he's also an awkward teenage boy, and he has crushes. He has dates, uh, fumbling kisses and make-out sessions. And so there's that weird mix of uh, a very, very tough guy and, in other cases, very, very vulnerable. And uh, he also has a somewhat rocky relationship with his dad, who's an intelligence officer, and who still keeps secrets from his younger son. And he also is still in high school. He's taking, in at least in uh, in Dark Victory, he's taking geometry tests after the battle. Geometry tests, he has English composition, and oops, here comes an alert, time to leave the classroom and pick up your weapons and, and get to work. Because um, in my book, I, I represent somewhere that the only reason the surviving Congress allowed children of age 12 and up to enlist is that they were kept up with their education. And he's also a bit of a wise-ass. Um, he's lost part of hearing in one of his ears, so when he hears something he doesn't want to hear as an order, he'll later say, oh, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't quite make out what you had to say, because he'll go out on his own and do stuff. But he's smart and he's tough. And he's experienced enough to know when to uh, when to stick with the plan and to, uh, and to maybe improvise. Certainly. And his best friend is his canine dog called Thor who's a Belgian Malinois, and as I noted in the first book, Dark Factory, Thor is a direct descendant of the Belgian Malinois, I believe the dog's name was Cairo, who went in with the Navy SEALs when they killed Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. So, And he's a character, too. He's very strong. He's very tough. And sometimes he disobeys uh, Randy. You know, the dog has a mind of its own. Yeah. Thor is cool. And uh, he's not the only descendant in Red Vengeance. You also have a we meet later a descendant of William Wallace, right? The... Correct, Carol Wallace. Uh, he gets assigned to a company, Company K, which stands for Kara's Killers. And at first, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're regular army, which always looks down on National Guard units. And he's like the new kid in the block, which he finds uh, very irritating. But soon enough, they, they come to realize his talents and his abilities. And there's sort of a... Uh, uh, not a high-speed chase, but a big chase where a group of aliens are chasing this company of American soldiers. And there's sort of a, I wouldn't say a last stand, but there's a stand, there's a resistance. And if you've ever seen the movie Zulu, uh, where it's the Rourke's Drift uh, little compound surrounded by thousands of Zulus, that's sort of what the last third of the book is about. Uh, an army, U.S. Army company cut off on a hillside surrounded on all sides by uh, attacking aliens, and they have to come up with ways of defending themselves. Yeah, it's really, um, it's it's uh, thrilling and fun uh, for uh, for action, uh, people that like action, and, and especially military action and, and gritty um, heroics, because these guys are, they, they don't have a whole lot of hope they're going to make it out of this, but they keep fighting anyway. Yeah, and there's one scene which I really enjoy playing. Carol Wallace is a descendant of William Wallace, the uh, the great Scots warrior, and also a descendant of uh, a General Wallace, who was in the first Iraq War, and or the second, no, the second Iraq War. I'm sorry. 
and uh, she has a, a piper, a bagpiper assigned to her unit, and there's a scene where he calls out the piper, okay, you know, let her rip. The, the bugs are coming after us. We need some uh, marital music to stir us up. And, uh, boy, I'd love to see this in a movie or a TV series, so that would be a great scene. There are, um, in both books, not only are the, the bugs or the creepers uh, sort of bad guys. Well, they are bad guys. They kill the hell out of everyone. Um, yeah. There are definitely humans who don't want the war to end, um, or at least want it to drag out a little. They are getting power and wealth from it, and some of these bad actors are in the government. Um, what is the setup of the U.S. government, and you know what, what state is, um, is society in at this point? The state of society of the United States is tenuous. We still have the states, we still have the governors. The president is a survivor of the original cabinet when the war began 10 years prior. And I think he's like an assistant secretary of defense who agreed to be president because some earlier people who agreed to be president you know, lasted only a month or two before the bugs found them and killed them. So being president isn't a very attractive job opportunity. But there are plots. There are people who think... Um, Maybe the United States should negotiate with the bugs by ourselves and get a better deal. Uh, do we really want to uh, represent the entire planet? And then there's like, are all the creepers, are they all speaking as one voice or are there different factions involved? And, you know, there's betrayals and, you know, as in all wars, there's profiteering and there are people who are looking out for their own interests or the interests of their own groups. So it's not as clear-cut. It's muddy. And that's one thing that... Uh, Poor Randy, who's 16 and a teenage boy, he'd rather see everything in, in terms of black and white, good and evil. And sometimes he finds fighting humanity is much more confusing and unsettling than fighting the aliens. Well, speaking of creepy guys in the government, tell us a little bit about uh, old Hoyt Cranston. He just feels duplicitous from the moment he shows up. Yeah. Hoyt Cranston in Red Vengeance is a surviving member of the Central Intelligence Agency. And, of course, uh, there's no more Langley. It's a couple of big water-filled craters. But there's still surviving CIA uh, officers around the country trying to gather intelligence, trying to contact other nations. And you're right, they are duplexes, and they are a bit slimy. And, you know, intelligence work is known as the wilderness of mirrors because you never really know what's going on, what information is out there, who's leaking it who's leaking it for what purpose, and, and, and who gains from it. And he'll say one thing, and something else happens. And uh, yeah, he does some bad things that, that kill some fellow Americans, which is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. So um, they uh, Randy joins this, uh, or is assigned uh, to this this unit, the uh, K Company of, what is it, the 14th Regiment, uh, 1st Battalion, 14th Regiment. I think some of the U S army, um, yep, known as Kara's killers. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, they go to these don't these other domes. They're trying to use the same tactics they used, uh, that, that buddy used and they've, um, are going to play, uh, some alien language, um, some creeper language to them. These are, I guess the twin domes are in Schenectady area. So it's upstate New York where most of the action in the book First takes state. place. What's that? And I, I, the last stand sort of uh, fight is at, what is it, Peck Hill State Park? I, yes, exactly right, yeah. yeah. So um, 
what goes wrong? Why does this uh, alleged truce or stand down with the creepers um, seem to end when they, they... Well, they approach the dome and they find out, oops, there's not one dome here, there's two domes. When I speak of dome, they're called base domes. It's where the creepers reside when they're not out on the countryside uh, raising buildings and killing people. And they're pretty much impervious to everything except nuclear devices. And they have a recording of Buddy Coulson, who had earlier in the first book, Dark Victory, had managed to get a dome to open up and to have the creepers surrender. And these soldiers don't have Buddy with them, but they have a recording, which is supposedly Buddy uh, talking and demanding the creepers surrender. But it's not, it's entirely different. It's actually more of a, a challenge, and the creepers don't take coming to that and come out and raise hell. And that's part of the process of the book is finding out why were they issued the wrong recording and for what reason. And things just go downhill from there. You know, they're chased. Uh, sometimes they run into civilians who don't want them around because some civilians say, if you just leave them alone, we'll leave us alone and we can all live in peace. Um, and it's a gritty, tough time. Ending up on this hillside of a state park in New York where the creepers have them surrounded 360 degrees and there's no easy way out. There is um, some odd creeper behavior in this one. There, there's a sort of a, we learn more about the creepers. We're going to learn a lot more about the creepers in the uh, in the sequel to this book. Um, sure. What are they doing that's different that, that raises Randy's suspicion that, about? Well, one thing, um, creepers would usually go out and doing what aliens do, which they can't quite figure out. And sometimes they'll just go out and have a brief violent encounter with the military and then retreat back into their, their base. But in this book, they're actually chasing a military unit, which is very strange. Other times they seem like they're following specific soldiers or squads, which has never been seen before. And in another sequence, um, the creepers are land-based creatures with, uh, you know, they look like giant arthropods, like giant... Uh, scorpions of the size of a school bus. And in some cases, they can, if not fly, jump great distances, which has never been seen before. So it looks like there's something evolving with the threat or something evolving with the way the creepers are dealing with humanity. And you got to remember, the war started 10 years ago, and 10 years later, it's still kind of unknown. Why did they come here, and what's their purpose? So... Um... Yeah, one line we hear several times in the book, in both books, is why do creepers do X? And, and it's because they're aliens. Why? Because they're aliens. Um, exactly. Do you do you think we might run into some inscrutable aliens if we at, during our first contact? Or um, I think so. I and I think the part of the problem will be um, how will we know when we're encountering aliens, and how will they know when they're encountering us? If you look at you know the, the age of the galaxy, the age of star systems nearby, and you look at this very narrow window where we are technologically sophisticated enough to be able to communicate with them or to you know realize they're out there through the SETI program, but the SETI program assumes that you know they're still using radio broadcasts, and look how much we've gone from radio broadcasts to you know um, fiber optic fiber. Who knows what communications will be like 100 years in the future, 200 years in the future. 
And, you know, perhaps alien intelligence by the time we get around to it will just be sentient machines. You know, who knows? But I think is an Einstein who said the university is queerer than we can even imagine or something to that effect. I mean, there are things we can't imagine that is out there. Yeah. That's the case. Well, that's what makes exploration fun too. Um, oh, absolutely. So, uh, well, let's shift gears for a second and talk about the sequel to Red Vengeance, um, assuming Randy survives this one. Uh, <laughs> what did we finally decide to call book three, by the way? The Black Triumph. Like Triumph, yes. Um, Black Triumph. That one's going to have some cool stuff, including possibly going into space. Um, where where are you along on that one? I've been, I am uh, about 60,000 words, and I think you guys wanted 100,000 words. In my deadline, September 1st, I'm very, very confident I will beat that deadline. Uh, it's coming along swimmingly. And yeah, uh, one of the main characters is transported into space. And uh, it's very scary up there. Yeah. Very, very, very scary. And, you know, I would point out about the books is that they're they're told in present tense and uh, in first person present tense. Books and I know. It really gets, I mean, uh, really gets you, um, your heart racing, that particular way of, uh, of storytelling. And you, not everybody can do it, but you're, you're kind of a master of it. Um, Why, thank you. You you know you do that with Lewis Cole too, right? Your mystery series, the no Lewis Cole is uh, past tense. It's past tense, uh. and but it just seemed that there was so much um, things going on that to help propel the story, I, it needed to be told in present tense, and just you know, just get things rolling along, and to get that sense that's happening right now, the sense that it is the here and now. And it, it's, I think it sucks you reading the story that you're there. Yeah, it, it does. Well, um, right. But, you know, it's some, some, it's hard to write because you remember, oh, you can't use that. That's a past tense word. So instead of saying so-and-so said, it's so-and-so says, you know. Yeah, I imagine uh, that can bit get convoluted when you're when you're working on it. But uh, we, we get it fixed by the, <laughs> by the time it comes out, right? We'll get it fixed. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, tell us, tell us a little bit more about Lewis Cole. Um, where, are you, um, are you continuing that series? Are you, are you going to do another one? He's kind of like this Jack Reacher crossed with, um, with somebody that, that cares more <laughs> than, than Reacher. Yeah. He's implacable and yet he's got a heart, a really good heart. Um, yeah. And I don't think, I don't think he's quite, uh, as crusty and hard charging as, um, uh... As Jack Reacher. But Lewis Cole is my detective series that takes place in and around the New Hampshire seacoast. And my first book in the series was published, God, 1994. For all you kids out there, that's pre-AOL, pre-internet, pretty much everything. And the 11th book in the series, Heart of Ground, is coming out uh, next February. And I imagine when winter comes around later this year, I'll have to come up with a book 12. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm also find myself in an extraordinarily fortunate uh, place to be co-authoring some works with uh, uh, New York Times bestselling author James Patterson. I've done three novellas with him, which are available f- to be purchased online. They're all three e-books. What do you call those uh, all the shots or something? What? They're called book shots. Book shots, yeah. Shots. They're 30,000-word novellas. 
and um, there's three of them. One's called The Witnesses, the other one's called The End, and the third one's called After the End. Now, when I got that wrapped up, I did a novel with him, which has been complete, and a couple months ago, I contacted him, we started talking, and I'm now working on a second full-length novel with him, which has been a lot of fun, very exhilarating, very, wow, very exhilarating cool. work. So he must have really liked the first one. He, yeah, he really did um, like the first one. And let me tell you, when you're working with the most popular author on the planet, you got to really step up your game. You really do. So... Uh, that's it's it's coming along. It, it's it's wonderful, 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 wonderful. When's the um the first Patterson uh, Du Bois novel coming out? Is it out or? Not sure. Um, that's in the works at the publishers, Little Brown, and I just sit back and wait for them to um make a decision with Mr. Patterson. So yeah. I'm just happy to be um working with him because I'm learning a lot, and he's a great person to collaborate with. That's really cool. Um, beyond, uh, beyond mystery and, uh, yeah, you, you think, um, you're interested in doing and exploring some other genres of science fiction. You seem to write just about anything. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wanted to be a science fiction author when I was 12. Uh, that's all I read as a child of the sixties and seventies and um, being active in the science fiction community. And then I went to journalism for a while, and I sort of back-ended my way into the mystery community. And I love the mystery community, but the little 12-year-old heart that still beats within me loved science fiction, and I was considered very fortunate and blessed that uh, Bain published my first true science fiction novel, Dark Victory, and just published my second one. And they'll be publishing my third, and I hope we can come to agreement to publish more down the road because you guys are wonderful to work with. So, well, you're, you're amazing to work with as well. Um, oh, thank and you yeah, get your books out on time, which not all of us are able to do sometimes, including yours truly. Uh, so, um, it's a pleasure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, the book is red vengeance by Brendan Dubois, and it's now available at booksellers everywhere. Brendan, thanks so much for, uh, talking with us. Tony, it's my pleasure, and as always, uh, working with you has been a highlight of my career. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount an armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with Dutiful Trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, 
the master trader's heir, and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corval's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 4 Terrigan In Jump They were in Jump, en route to Biradine, and the pilot had given co-pilot Tolly Jones leave to grab a snack and stretch his legs. There was mite in the galley, so he added hot water and stirred up a mugful. Unlike some spacers, it wasn't his drink and or food of preference, but it had its uses as a quick pick-me-up, which it happened he needed. The pilot was pushing them, just a little, nothing bone and blood couldn't put up with, stipulating that bone and blood was what you'd call in form. Which he wasn't, quite. He swallowed the mite as fast as he could, put the mug in the washer, and exited the galley, turning left to take a little walking tour of Terrigan. She was a tidy ship, augmented in interesting ways, which pilot Tokel had already drilled him on. The pilot wouldn't suffer one bit of damage if he did something stupid that breached the hull, but he'd be a dead man. And it was courteous of her to notice his disability in that regard and take steps first off to be sure he was safe on the ship. His tour ended, as it had on his three other walkabouts, at the alcove that held the auto dock. He paused at the side of the single unit, palm flat against the opaque hood, and frowned at the status board. Has, his former partner in port security, Hasenful Norfellium, had taken a couple hits for him, which normally would have made as much difference to her as getting slugged with a marshmallow. She was that big and that tough. Too bad for her that the particular sort of marshmallows she'd caught had come out of the gun of one of his late directors, and they'd been poisoned. It was a particularly nasty poison the directors employed, which he knew from personal experience, but him and the pilot had gotten Haz into the dock plenty quick. He'd expected her to be up and around by now. The good news was that the dock had consistently reported that she was on the mend. In fact, the end-of-treatment display was finally lit up this time. He leaned close to have a look. Fourteen hours till the hood came up. He patted the top of the dock softly, as if Haz might feel his hand and take some comfort from knowing he had her back just like old times. He patted the dock once more and left the alcove, heading for the bridge. How fares the explorer? The pilot asked from her station. She was a sight for tired eyes, was pilot Tokel. 
smooth and personable, and specifically non-threatening. The curve of her gleaming white chassis suggesting something feminine. The smallness of it hinting at vulnerability. She moved herself about the ship by floating a few inches above the deck plates. Nothing so crass or noisy as wheels or skis. He hadn't worked out if her motivating force was anti-grav, magnetics, or a tightly focused and utterly silent air pad. It seemed rude to ask. It was Tolly's opinion, as an expert in the field, that there wasn't the least need for Pilot Tokol to sit station. Pilot Tokol had direct access to all ship's systems right there inside her pretty little head, or he was a three-nosed and dulcet frog. She's got a healed-by date, he said in answer to his pilot's question. Fourteen hours from now, this bridge is going to be full up with big, stubborn woman who'll be wanting to talk to her captain, Stat. I shall be very glad to see her. And in such condition, Pilot Tokel said composedly. In the meantime, I wonder, Pilot, if you will answer some questions for me. Do my best, he said like his stomach hadn't kind of cramped up hearing that. Understand that I don't know the answers to all the questions. Oh yes, I do understand that, she said. Before we begin, let me request that you not lie to me. If you do not wish to answer a question, simply refrain from doing so. All right, pilot, he said, and slipped into his chair. I'm curious myself, though. The, my contact who approached me about this project, he has my credentials. Indeed, your credentials are impressive, she said, and you are undeniably resourceful. Our mutual contact was quite clear that you are a mentor of great talent. The most talented in your field, he said. To be fair, the field isn't that big, the complex logic laws being what they are. That the pilot was herself a violation of the complex logic laws went without saying. His being hired as co-pilot was to cover for her. She was a prototype, so the script went, some kind of a cyber-mech pilot, sophisticated but stopping short of illegal. Which was why she sat station. He was along for the ride, to observe, to make notes, and to abort her if something went wrong. However, his contract had two sections to it, and the second part engaged his services in evaluating and, if possible, socializing a newly realized AI, who had come to awareness under unspecified but difficult circumstances, unmentored. He didn't have anything against sitting co-pilot, but he might not have taken the contract just to give pilot Tokol cover, seeing that his own blanket had lately developed a considerable number of holes. The second part of the contract, though, that had grabbed his attention and it hadn't let go.
Never mind that the complex logic laws made Pilot Tokel and all her kind out to be rogue devices, bent on destroying human life. If encountered, according to the CLL, an AI was to be confined, deactivated, or destroyed, nobody was to take it into their heads to build one for any reason whatsoever, under pain of death. It hadn't always been that way. Truth said, it wasn't that way even now. AIs got born, not as a frequent thing, but often enough that mentors were needed. They worked the underside, but not one mentor Talid ever met or heard of had minded that. Pilot Tokol turned toward him, the flat screen at the apex of her slender core column showing the shadow of a face, smiling, a shadow smile. The field may be small, but that does not negate the fact of your mastery, Tali. Our contact praised you in the highest terms. I have no questions there. Tali took a breath. Where do you have questions then? he asked her, but he already knew. There was a small pause, as if Pilot Tokol needed a moment to gather her thoughts. Tolly sighed gently. A sigh, Pilot Tolly. I was thinking I'd like to meet the mentor who had the teaching of you. I could learn a thing or two. He paused and added, just to be clear, no disrespect, Pilot. Certainly not. If you think such a meeting would be of use, I will ask my mentor if he will see you when this mission is done. I'd like that. Thanks. You are very welcome. And now, I fear, my questions. What are you, Tolence Barrick Jones? That was asked well enough that he was persuaded she already knew. No point in lying, then, or in remaining silent. I'm a manufactured human, pilot. The humans, so I don't offend the complex logic laws. There are also laws against manufacturing humans, I believe. A lot harder to prove manufactured. I see. There came another pause, as if the pilot were considering his answer. Are you the uncles? He blinked. Hadn't seen that one coming. No, pilot, he said, not surprised that she knew the uncle and that she expected the same of him. People on the underside knew their neighbors, that was all. This vulnerability of yours, which you have been working to limit, how much danger does it bring to our ship and our mission. Well, that was the question, wasn't it? Pilot, I don't know. The pool of available directors is pretty small. He allowed himself a moment of grim humor. Smaller now, thanks to Haz. Even if they mean to have me, no matter what, it's going to take time for word to get back to the school, time to send another team out, and then they have to find us. I'm not saying it's impossible that they will. 
I understand, she said, after his words ran out. If she'd been human, Tolly had the notion she'd have sighed right then. This vulnerability, what is its nature? An implant? A construction? Something biologic? He shook his head. Pilot, I don't know. He hesitated, then decided it wouldn't do any harm to tell her. I figured to steal the specs back when I was young and really stupid. I can tell you that the directors keep them locked up tight, and that they're stinting of praise when one of the students shows initiative and has a go at the locks. I see. Describe to me, please, the effects of control. My will is overridden. My self is submerged. I am compelled to do such things as the operator deems necessary. When I have completed a mission, I am allowed to return to what I believe to be myself. He felt his lips quirk. This may be a flaw in the system. Perhaps so. One would assume that there was a reason for it, however. Yes'm. Could I ask you a favor, co-pilot to pilot? Yes. If it seems to you that I've fallen victim to my vulnerability, will you please kill me? Her face came fully visible for an instant before the pilot angled the screen downward and tipped slightly forward in a bow. Yes, she said, I will. It soothed him to hear her say it, which was maybe stupid. Still, he figured her good for the promise. Whoever designed Pilot Tokel had been uncommon clever. She wouldn't be caught in any whistling glamour. It came to him then that he had two solid allies standing at his back, given what Haz had already done for him and that thing the pilot promised. Two allies, people he could depend on without question. He couldn't remember in all his life having so much as one ally, and he hoped, his eyes prickling a little as he looked to his screens, he very much hoped that he would stand just as firm for them. One question more, Pilot Tolly. He drew a breath and turned back to face her. Yes'm? I wonder if you have heard a rumor, let us say. Presently, I hold it no higher than that, a rumor of a very old AI, recently wakened. The uncle may be in it, there's that rumor also, but surely he would be, so it's no surprise there. An ancient AI waking, reawaking, it would be. And if it were reawakening, then it had likely fallen asleep due to lack of needed repairs. The uncle was well-placed to repair such a thing. Tolly laughed and shook his head, looking up at the pilot with an apologetic grin. I haven't heard any such rumor myself, but I've been out of the loops this last while. He felt his grin widen. Sure would be interesting, if true, he said. 
and saw an answering grin in the shadows of the pilot's face. It would be, she said, wouldn't it? A chime sounded. Sean raised his head, blinking out of an abstraction of first thoughts. It occurred to him, somewhat distantly, that this was not the first time the chime had sounded. Or the third. A quick series of taps saved his document and cleared the screen. He spun his chair about and reached for his glass, which was empty. Come. The door opened and Lena Faldum stepped through. Tiny and definite, brown hair just slightly disheveled, as if she had only now come back inside from a turn in the garden. He considered her, most especially, he considered the flavor of her emotions. Determination wedded to a certain wariness. Determination, certainly, he knew Lena to be a determined woman, a healer of rare skill, devoted to helping those who were perhaps less determined to achieve and maintain balance. Wariness, though, that was not at all like Lena. Oh, she was hardly a fool, and certainly he had seen her frightened a time or two in their long friendship. Caution, he might expect. But wariness? I have disturbed your work, she said, pausing a mere three paces into the room. Forgive me, old friend. Tell me when I will be convenient, and I will return at that hour. In fact, your arrival is a happy circumstance, and not only because I'm always pleased to see you, he said. I fear that I may have been overthinking something. It will do me good to step away from it and entertain another problem for a time. He tipped his head and gave her a half smile. You do have a problem for me, don't you, Lena? He expected a laugh. She produced a slightly harried smile. I fear so, she said, drifting forward again and slipping into the chair. No. This was not much like Lena. Sean considered her again as she settled herself. Determination, wariness, puzzlement. Well, would you care for wine, he asked. I'm about to pour for myself as my stupid glass has come empty. I can't think how it might have happened. That earned a slightly less harried smile and a small inclination of the head. Wine would be pleasant, thank you. Lena drank red. He rose and filled two glasses, placing hers on the desk near her hand before he once again took his own chair. He raised his glass. She raised hers. They drank. The wine was pleasant, though spiced with increased dismay. He thought he understood that she was unsure of the best way to broach her topic. Best to leap in with both feet, he murmured. Lena moved her shoulders, neither a shrug nor a shiver. It seems I must, since I have no facts to lay before you, merely feeling. 
We are healers. Emotion is the primary tool of our trade. Lena sighed and sipped her wine again. Sean allowed a breath of calm to waft between them, which took only the tiniest of liberties with their long friendship. Unless Lena chose to see it differently, of course. She smiled slightly. Thank you, she murmured. She put her glass aside with a tiny click and raised her eyes to his. As we had arranged, Paddy came to class and danced Debriat today. I will say immediately that I have had students who were more eager to embrace the art. Was she disrespectful? Lena shook her head. Disrespectful? No. Perhaps a little disdainful at first, but that is not unusual for one coming to the small dance after having partaken of Menfriat. I had the impression when she entered the room that she had not expected to find so many co-students. Definitely, she was displeased to find John among us. She kept her temper, however, and after an initial misunderstanding regarding the timing of our dance, she comported herself well. She reached for her glass and sipped again, frowning. I noted that it was very difficult for her to move in proper rhythm. She wanted speed. Her body wanted speed. To move so slowly was not merely a novelty, but physically stressful. Sean swirled the wine in his glass, looked up to meet her eyes. She is a pilot with a pilot's reactions, newly come from an intense course of specialized training. Lena nodded from which spring John's concerns, that the specialized training had been too intense and had unbalanced her judgment. His hope is that the small dance will assist her in reasserting her balance, as he and I have seen it do for other dancers. She paused, and Sean considered her carefully. You have reason to believe that this therapy will not be of benefit to Paddy. Here was the crux. He felt the heat of her frustration, even as she blew out her breath. Paddy is, oh, bah, I will say it, and it will sound like idiocy, but perhaps we too may then parse it into sense. Paddy, old friend, does not relax. Sean laughed. Corval as a clan is driven to succeed. Surely that hasn't escaped your attention. Paddy is very much a child of Corval. Worse, she is one of Corval who has been forcibly diverted from her life path and her plans. She is running hard to catch herself back up. He stopped here because Lena was shaking her head. It is something more than that. Something other than that. You have studied the small dance. What is its purpose, aside from focusing intent? He had studied Debriat when he had been trader Yos Gallen and scarcely older than Paddy was now. 
Its principles and purposes had long ago entered his general repertory of skills, trying to isolate its purpose rather than seeing it as a part of the tapestry. Options, he said. Debriot diffuses reflexive action and opens the mind to possibility. Yes, it is, at its heart, a tool to relax and to expand the awareness. Lena drew a hard breath. Paddy does not relax. She is always on high energy. Even at the end of our practice, when we sit together and breathe, I saw her. A sharp head shake, as if Lena was out of patience with her inability to find the perfectly correct words. I saw her divert the energy, rather than accepting its benefits. Sean frowned. Divert it where? She gave him a wry look. That I did not see. However, I may make a guess. As she rose to leave, I noticed the suggestion of stone in her aura, as of walls within. Sean blinked. You think Paddy is hiding something and is diverting energy from everything she does in order to keep a secret behind walls? Yes, I knew you would shape it sensibly. Well, he might have done so, but the feat gave him no joy. Not when the next question was, naturally, hiding what? Closely followed by, why hadn't he noticed? But no, he had noticed. The children, all of the children, save perhaps the infant twins, had returned from Runig's rock. Changed. The nature of the training, the very reason for their presence at the rock, who would not be changed by such things? And he had noticed not walls, but a reserve, certainly. Priscilla had also noticed, and Anthora. Between them, they had made the decision to give the children time to heal themselves, if healing was indeed required, while their elders kept watch. It was a conservative course. Self-healing was in almost all cases to be preferred. I had noticed a certain reserve, he said carefully, not wishing to lie to Lena and equally unwilling to burden her with Corval secrets. I would not have said a wall. Lena nodded. It is well hidden. I think I would not have seen it, but that I had just danced and was thus open to all input. Which leads me, old friend, to the last of the problems I have to place before you today. He raised an eyebrow and inclined his head. She smiled. It comes to me that Paddy is a halfling. He raised his hand. You will say that she is ripe to come into her powers. I ask her, as often as I might, without becoming entirely tedious, you understand, and she denies the classic symptoms of onset. 
I also scan, of course, but I found nothing to indicate a budding healer. I venture to predict that Paddy will come Dramliza, Lena said. Based on this glimpse of stone, and the fact that it is so very well hidden, yes. She seemed about to say more, but at the last moment changed her mind. Sean, however, knew what she might say, that a Dramliza coming into her power was a far different, a far more dangerous thing than a healer coming into hers. Such a coming of age might even endanger the passage. I will speak with Priscilla. Will you be available to assist, should we decide it best to force the issue? Certainly, one dislikes such methods, as I know you do, but the ship. Indeed, the ship. Lena rose and bowed as between equals, which put a fine point on the discussion they had just completed. Healers discussing the proper concerns of healers. He rose and returned the bow, then walked her to the door. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Christopher Rocchio and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a long line of alien tripod death machines all bowing on one knee and firing saluting heat rays into the sky, along with the gleeful barks and joyful howls of the Belgian Melanois Hallelujah Chorus. They look like German shepherds. For Brendan Dubois, author of Red Vengeance. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 